0: This morning, we'll be reading from the Word of God uh, two passages. First, from Psalm 19. You can find this on page 628 in the Pew Bible. And then the words of our text, which will be taken from Micah 6, verse 8, and that's on page 1075 in the Pew Bible. Uh, As you well know, uh, this morning we are commemorating uh, Jim's Sunday. And I've been told that Micah 6, verse 8 is the the theme verse for the GEMS program. Uh, Now, I recognize some time ago we had a series of sermons through Micah, uh, but I thought it perhaps fitting that we return this morning uh, and look at Micah 6, verse 8, not only in connection with uh, GEMS, uh, but also connection with cadets, and in connection for all of us. Uh, Micah 6, verse 8, of course, is a text given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, It's a text that many of you know very well. It is a text that, because it is the Word of God, is authoritative for our life, but it also captures in a very concise statement uh, what our God requires of us. Uh, But for a bit of background, we want to read from Psalm 19. Here now together, the reading of the Word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We then turn to the words of our text that we consider this morning from Micah 6, verse 8. We read there as follows, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God." A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to live life very long before you realize that there are many, many a person who will tell you what you ought to do. And you don't even have to solicit this type of input. Uh, Many a person will offer freely their suggestion for what you ought to do. Now, Now, sometimes this is right and this is proper, Uh, And so the commandments tell us that we are to honor our father and our mother, that we are to honor those who are in positions of legitimate authority over us, that we are to, as our catechism puts it, heed their good instruction. And there's also times in which we can glean much knowledge and wisdom from sources, individuals. But at other times, uh, the input that is given is nothing more than the babble of talking heads. Uh, people in our culture seem to thrive on offering their input, whether it be through their voice or whether it be through the voice of social media. There, there's no shortage of suggestions for how you and I ought to live our life. And at times, those suggestions can become quite adamant. You must do this. You have to do that. And advertisement loves to use this type of tactic. Uh, you might even get something in the mail that says, urgent. Uh, these seem to come, especially uh, after you, you purchase a new product and suddenly uh, your name perhaps is sold to some type of mailing list, and uh, you get daily almost uh, envelopes saying, you have to pay attention to this. You have to buy this insurance. You have to buy this extended program. You have to consider this school or this university or this program of study. And at times it can all be a bit overwhelming. The nearly endless stream of voices telling us What we ought to do or what we have to do. And it's refreshing, at least for me, to think that our Lord speaks with concise brevity. What does the Lord require of us? Well, it's quite simple when you think of it. As is expressed in our text do justly, love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And so for our encouragement this morning, we want to look at this text underneath this theme, God's duty of humanity. Noticing, first of all, the question of God's duty for humanity, and then secondly, the revelation of God's duty for humanity, and then thirdly, the explanation of God's duty for humanity. By duty here, what does God require? What does God require of the human individual? of the human person. We'll notice the question, the revelation, and the explanation of this duty that God has for humanity. First of all, the question, very simply put, the question is what does the Lord require? What does the Lord require of us corporately and me individually as part of that that corporate body? I want to look briefly at the question In its original context and then the question in its perpetual existence. We have to be careful that we don't just go and find a text and pull it out of its context and immediately apply it to our contemporary setting. And so if we stop for just a moment and consider this text in its original setting, uh, we have here a word of the Lord through the prophet Micah uh, to the covenant people of Israel. Given in the 8th century before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God's chastising hand was bringing about a pending exile, the Assyrians, the fierce Assyrians, were beginning to come upon the northern ten tribes, bringing all sorts of horrific threatenings. And so you might say that the future is dark uh, for the apostatizing tribes of Israel. The future is dark because they were guilty of spiritual hypocrisy, hypocrisy that of putting on an external appearance. And a few passages that I would refer you to in this connection, if you glance back at Micah 1, verse 1 through 7, you notice there uh, the complaint that the Lord has. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all you peoples, listen, O earth and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces." And all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Now note well, the northern tribes were religious. They were spiritual. They were a worshiping group of people. But their worship was the worship of the hypocrite. It had the external form, but there was no internal reality behind it. And God saw right through it. And he says, judgment is coming to the house of the Lord. And that forced Israel to, so to speak, step back and ask, what does the Lord want of us? I have to be careful, of course, with my illustrations. I hope they're helpful and not problematic. If they are problematic, feel free to uh, inform me of that. But sometimes sometimes uh, I'll watch a basketball game, and a player will clearly commit a foul. I mean, there's no question in anyone's mind that it's a foul. And the official will blow the whistle, and the player who committed a foul will, will hold up his hands and say, what? What did I do? And all the viewers say, what do you mean, what did you do? You just hacked the guy. You just fouled the guy. It was clear. It was evident. But that's kind of what Israel is doing here. They're perpetually living in idolatry. But now when the Lord comes in His covenant of holiness and says, I'm going to bring judgment, they step back and go, what do we do? What do you want? What are you looking for? What do you demand of us, Lord? What do you require of us? You see, that's the question. God is not pleased with their external facade of spirituality, and when He confronts them with it, Israel pretends to be offended and says, well, I don't know what the Lord wants of us. And this question has A contemporary reign, because this is a question of perpetual existence. Many times, also within the covenant community and its historical administration, you hear this question come up, what does the Lord want of us? What does the Lord want us to do as Christians, as a Christian church? And here again, there are all kinds of voices that will tell us what we ought to do. Whether it be as an individual person, whether it be as an office bearer, whether it be as a congregation, whether it be as a young member of the church, whether it be as an old member of the church, it seems there is a never-ending stream Of people saying, This is what you have to do, 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 this is what you have to do. And for the young people, sometimes I think this can be overwhelming for you. To the point where you go, I don't know if I want to do anything. Because I don't know what I should do. But the answer is more simple than that. As long as we realize the question boils down to one's relationship with the Lord. And I just want to warn us uh, against some type of agnostic, atheistic secularism. When we ask ourselves what we should do, it needs to be asked in relationship to the lord god what does the lord require of us atheism whether it be practical or theoretical atheism is the attempt to live out a worldview denying the existence of god psalm 14 verse 1 says the fool has said in his heart there is no god agnostic are those who pride themselves in being unable to answer the question whether there even is a God. Here again is the height of foolishness. For a person to compliment themselves at their ignorance over the existence of God is foolishness. There's also another movement in our contemporary culture that I want to warn ourselves against, moralistic, therapeutic deism This perhaps especially is the idol of our age, also crept in uh, to the church unawares. Uh, This belief is that God just wants everyone to be happy and to go to heaven. What does the Lord require of you? That's the question. The answer is not some simple facade of formalistic spirituality. But before we get into the fullness of the answer, uh, notice where we need to go for the answer, and that's in our second point, the revelation of God's duty for humanity. But as we transition into the second point, I'd put this question before you. Have you wrestled with this question, what does the Lord require of me? Have you reckoned with the existence of a sovereign Lord God? Because notice that that is the source of the revelation. Uh, Look back again at our text in Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? I just want to look for a brief moment at the very first word in our English translation, he. And he, of course, is further elaborated on in our text uh, with the names Lord and and God. So the he emphasizes the divine initiative in this act of revealing unto us what we ought to be doing with ourselves and with our lives. He has shown you. He has made known to you. He has revealed to you. And it is remarkably comforting that we are not left to our own imagination, and we are not left in our own ignorance. God is not a God who just kind of hides in the cosmic realm and says, well, I hope they can find me. I hope they can somehow discover me. It's not some type of riddle. It's not some type of quest to find the unknown God. He has shown you. He has declared to you And He continues to come to us and very clearly through His Word and through the proclamation of His Word to come to you and say, this is what I require. This is what I will. This is what I desire. And it's absolutely baffling at times uh, the extent that human beings will go in the following of their own imagination and so you'll hear people, and they, they try to peer into the, the meanings of their dreams and of their visions. They try to peer in, perhaps, to the alignment of the planets and of the stars and of cosmic signs to seek some type of direction for their life. They'll consort uh, the modern mediums. Uh, they'll get together in groups and ask one another, well, what do you think I ought to do with my life? What do you think I ought to do with my life? And now there might be some benefit to consulting in the communion of the saints, but the first place to begin is what does the Lord reveal to me? What does the Lord want me to do today and in the days of my life and in the years of my life? Psalm 19, verse 7, which we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He. He is elaborated on by the name Lord. And you'll notice in our translation, Lord is all encapsulated letters. This is the covenant name, Yahweh. And it signifies at least two things. The first thing that Yahweh signifies is the eternal immutability of God. And what that simply means is that God does not change He does not change in His own persons. He does not change in His plans. He does not change in His promises. He does not change in what He desires for us. He does not change in His revelation to us. One of the most frustrating things is to receive conflicting instructions, and our young people, I mean, you can about imagine this. If you, if you go to school one day and the teacher says, well, you know, do, do, the, do the homework this way. And then the next day you come and the teacher says, no, 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 do the homework th- th- this different way. Well, by the third day, at least, you'll throw up your hands and say, this is pointless. Even the teacher doesn't know what they want. And, and the same thing is true as we interact perhaps in our workplaces you know, if day one the foreman or the boss says, well, I want to done these steps, follow this procedure, and then the next day they come and say, no, 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 no. We're going to do a completely different. Basically, you begin to question uh, the wisdom of that person. But here's the wonderful, beautiful truth. The Lord is immutable. His will is always the same. He does not change. And not only does the Lord emphasize the eternal immutability of our God's nature, it also emphasizes His covenantal faithfulness. And this is seen in the Ten Commandments and in the preface to that, I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you. And flowing out of that relationship, there are then the, the ten words. And the relationship doesn't change, and so the words don't change. I am the Lord your God. And because He is the Lord our God, we ought to give the entirety of our attention to what does the Lord require of me? What does my redeeming God desire of me? What is the will of the one who has saved me through the work of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ? And the name God there emphasizes the infinite power, the glory, the majesty of the one true God of heaven and earth. Because we need to be very, very careful and we need to be very, very diligent uh, against any type of anthropocentric focus creeping into our question. And what do I mean by anthropocentric? That it's all about me. That my life is all about me. And, and, And as long as the Lord gives me strength, I will preach this to my own heart And I will preach it to the hearts of anyone who hears. At the end of the day, it's not about me. God was not created for me, I was created for God. What is the essence of idolatry? To set oneself up as the ultimate end of life. So instead of coming with this question what does the Lord require of me? many, 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 a person comes and says, what do I require of the Lord? But that's to flip the matter upside down. He, the Lord God, immutable, faithful, majestic, sovereign, He comes with a simple claim. And He makes this claim known through His Word through His Word, especially as given by the prophets, and also then, of course, the apostles, culminating in the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past. God spoke. God spoke in various ways and in various times by the prophets, Hebrews continues, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Just pause for a moment and marvel at that God has spoken to you. Not in the dream you had last night. Not in the inclination you had a week ago. Not in some type of divine riddle that you think you solved. But he has spoken to you. By his son. By his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And this revelation is found in the Holy Scriptures. And so if you think of it for a moment, as we oh maybe just turn over to Second. Peter chapter 1, a good text that we all ought to continually bear in mind. Second uh, Peter chapter 1 uh, references the connection that we're seeking to emphasize uh, between the revelation of the Word of God uh, and the inscripturation of that revelation uh, as we have it in our uh, Holy Bible. Uh, so Second Peter chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 19 through 21, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed. As a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And now the the immediate preceding context is Peter is reflecting back upon his experience uh, on the transfiguration. When he was allowed to glimpse something more of the the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. But notice what Peter says. He, He reflects upon his experience in which he saw the glory of Christ. On the Mount of Transfiguration. But then he says, We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. He doesn't say, You know, if only I could get back to that Mount of Transfiguration, in which he heard the Father speak from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. If you want to hear Christ, it's found in the Word. Knowing this first, Peter continues, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to jot down in your notes for future reference, Isaiah 8, verse 19 and 20. This is the echo that needs to continue to reverberate down the halls of the churches. And when they say to you, this is the apostatizing element of Israel, when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? And so to the young people of this congregation... When our culture says, find fulfillment in this or in that, or or seek wisdom in this area or in that area, or consult these experts or consult these individuals. Isaiah 8, verse 19 and verse 20 is very clear. To the law and to the testimony go there. Don't follow human individuals. Don't follow people who put themselves on pedestals and say that they have all the answers to the riddles of life. Don't follow those who think that they have some new novel insight never before discovered to the law and to the testimony. And Isaiah continues, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You can take the most advanced professor with all sorts of titles behind his or her name, and you can evaluate what they say with this book. And if what they say contradicts this book, you can know absolutely there is no light in them. You don't need to reevaluate your Bible, you don't need to readjust your Bible. You don't need to some type of higher critical, cut your Bible into pieces. You can know for certainty that the individual who speaks something that is contrary to the inscripturated word speaks in their own darkness. And so to the law and to the testimony again and again and again and again for us as individuals and families and also as a congregation... Well, what then is our duty? It's very simple. And our third point, and so we can attempt to be rather brief. Isn't it remarkable how concise the Lord is in regards to our duty? You know, there's so many different Manuals of policies and various organizations that seem to go on and, on and on and on and on and on and on, page after page, line after line, precept after precept, instruction after instruction, and our Lord comes and says, "You want to know what the Lord requires? Do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And I, for one, find this absolutely liberating. Not that I can attain it in and of my own strength, but if you ever find yourselves overwhelmed with a seemingly endless list of requirements and duties that individuals put upon you or before you, step back. Our Lord has redeemed us to liberty, not bondage. Isn't it remarkable that God's moral commands are summarized with ten words? Ten. Not twenty, not a hundred, not a thousand, but ten. And the explanation of God's duty for humanity first of all applies to one's neighbor and our relationship with one's neighbor. Now, just a bit of context, in the days of Micah, the Israelites were exploiting each other, taking advantage of each other. Especially the rich were oppressing the poor, and so the Lord God calls for justice and for mercy. We are to do justice. And we don't have the time, nor do I think it would be edifying to wade into the whole world of social justice, etc., but just simply allow me to say this, justice is that which is right as determined by God. Justice is that which is right as determined by God. You and I do not ultimately determine what is just. God determines what is just. And in our interpersonal interactions at a horizontal level, if you want to know what is just as you deal with your fellow man, Look to the second table of the law. It is just to honor legitimate authority. It is unjust to rebel against legitimate authority. The fifth commandment. It is just to seek to preserve our fellow man's life. It is unjust to brutally take our fellow man's life and so in our culture all of the cries that come for social justice out of the same mouths that advocate for pro-abortion stances are a blatant hypocritical contradiction you want to talk about being just with your fellow man preserve his or her life. You want to know what justice is as it comes into the areas of human sexuality? Let each man have his own wife. And each woman have her own husband. And let the entirety of the experience and the exercise of intimacy be confined to that sacred bond. Anything outside of that is unjust. God hates all unchastity. And as we interact with one another in the transfer of material possessions, fairness, a certain equity, and also then how we speak, you know, these things are not overly complicated. You want to know what the Lord requires of you as you do justice, as you speak of your fellow person? Don't slander him or her. Don't judge him or her unheard. Do everything that you can in your power to uphold your neighbor's good name and his reputation. So don't talk about justice out of the same mouth which gossips and slanders. That's hypocrisy. And God sees right through it. Do justice and love mercy. What is mercy? Well, it's a loving kindness. You might even, and it's a, it's a bit of a loose translation, but I believe it, it accurately seeks to capture the nature of the Word, a good-heartedness, a covenant loyalty. That's why we chose in part to to read for our text of pardon and to sing uh, as a father has a tender heart towards all his children. That's mercy. Mercy is a good-heartedness. Mercy is even a a soft-heartedness. Love this mercy. And, And why should the Christian love mercy? Isn't it rather obvious? Because we are the ones who have received infinite mercy. You know, you can think of the parable of the servant who owed the king an innumerable amount that he could never repay. And the king said that he forgave that innumerable amount. And then that wicked servant went out and he saw his fellow man who owed him just a couple of bucks and he laid his hands on the man and said, pay me what you owe. And even when we, when we read, when we hear that, that parable, it just strikes us. What a contradiction. The man had received infinite mercy. And yet he lays his hands upon his fellow servant who owes him just a couple of dollars. But how many times aren't our hearts the same? Oh, we come and we hear that text of pardon and we say, Oh, I thank you, Lord, that I am forgiven of my sins. But I remember that man who wronged me. Woe unto him. Beloved, is there any greater contradiction than to try to bask underneath the grace and the mercy of God who has forgiven us freely an infinite amount of our sin? and then to turn our faces to our fellow man and say, but I remember and I will always remember what he, what she. Walk humbly with our God. This is really the heart of the matter because the doing of justice and the loving of mercy will flow out of a humble heart. And what is humility of heart? Humility of heart is simply this, to recognize God as God and then to evaluate my own person in proper light of that, that God is God. I am not God. You are not God. We are not God. God is God. And He has shown us That which He requires of us. And so, by His redeeming grace, ultimately, humility is found in the exercise of faith and repentance. You want to know whether or not you have a humble heart? I ask this question, do you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If so, that's evidence of humility. Because the proud, they say, well, I have this and I have that. Maybe the proud says, sure, I trust in Jesus Christ, but they put an and after it. I trust in Jesus Christ and the fact that I do this or that I have done that. Or maybe they word it in the negative. I trust in Jesus Christ and that I am not like him or like her. The humble exercise of faith, trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that exercise of faith then also, of course, is accompanied by the sincere expression of repentance. Humility of heart says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. So it's rather concise, it's rather simple. It's also echoed in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. And with this I close, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your revelation to us. Now We ask that that clarity would be driven into the depths of our soul by the powerful application of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when we ask the question, what does the Lord require of us, may we never do so in an exasperated way. But may we do so in a sincere way, and may we then know the certainty of the answer that we are called as your covenantal people to be those who do justice, those who love mercy, and at the bottom of it all, those who walk humbly with our God. And may that be true of the very youngest members of this congregation, all the way through to the most advanced saint. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.